0: Thanks for joining us today. Our church exists to give everyone, everywhere, every reason to know Jesus. You can learn more by connecting with us on Facebook at Journey Fellowship Denton. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy today's message. Praise the Lord. He's doing something. The Lord's work. Amen. Praise the Lord. I want you to take your Bibles with me this morning. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26. Gospel of Matthew chapter twenty six. I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture today. I figure that uh, reading more scripture makes me a better preacher. Can somebody say Amen? It means more than it means more than just my thoughts and opinions. The scripture is God breathed; it's inspired by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is inspired by the Spirit of God. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36, the scripture says this, And then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Many of you understand that as Not my will, but thine be done. Let's pray. Father, I pray over the reading, Lord, of your word this morning that you would anoint my lips to expound upon the great words of the Lord. The story of our Savior entering to this garden of Gethsemane just days before the greatest transaction in the history of mankind. When you, Lord, took upon our sin and traded it for righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Help me, Lord. Help me. Help me. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help me to deliver, Lord, the words that you have laid upon my heart today. And we will give you the glory in Jesus' name, Amen. How many of you planted plant gardens? How many of you have planted gardens, or you you like planting gardens? Who's got the green thumbs in the room? I need to I need you to raise your hand because I need to know who I need to start seeing after church for some tomatoes and onions. And just let me know. My neighbor Caddy Corner across the street. Uh, they've lived there for, uh, about a year or so, and. Last summer or in the fall, I saw him um, doing a lot of work in his backyard, and I thought, what in the world is going on? Well, a couple weeks ago, I went over to his, to his house, and I had to borrow a ladder that he had, and I had to go in the backyard, and as I opened the gate to the backyard, I noticed my right and my left two raised beds about 10 foot wide and 20 foot long, filled with vegetables and spices and herbs he had heads of broccoli that big already he had a he had a he'd been he'd been tarping them there was a he had a water system set up where it would automatically He just turn the water on it was i mean he did it right and i have not seen such a beautiful garden in many many years and i told lance i said man you know how to do it and he said it's the soil. He said, it's hard to grow things sometimes in the soil around here. He said, when they build the houses, they scrape all the good soil off. He said, you're left with nothing. And he said, so you bring your own soil. That's where it really starts. He said, and then you can really kind of take care of it. And I said, well, just remember this. That's great. You've got a beautiful garden. When you start pulling stuff and those, and those tomatoes are ready, and ready to go, you don't forget about your friend across the street a beautiful garden i've had somewhat beautiful gardens before i've been i've been uh, uh the res, on the receiving end of some beautiful gardens but gardens are are something that have been a part of our lives for many of us some of you think that uh vegetables are grown in the aisles of walmart i know that some of you think that i know my kids do no they come from gardens There's a lot of things that come from gardens. And this morning I want to talk to you about four gardens. Four gardens that are mentioned in Scripture. That's the title of my message, the four gardens. There are four gardens that are mentioned in Scripture. One is the Garden of God. One is the Garden of Eden. One is the Garden of Gethsemane that we read in our text this morning. And then there is what I call the Garden of Resurrection. It's not mentioned as a garden, but it is a garden. Garden of the tomb of the Lord. Two of those gardens in Scripture resulted in some of the worst destruction and tragedy known in the history of all time. And then two other gardens resulted in some of the greatest victories, the greatest victories that mankind could ever experience. This morning, I just want to open the Word of God and show you these four gardens this morning. Look with me in Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11. Now, as I read this this morning, I want to just give you some instruction as far as how to interpret this passage of Scripture. The prophet Ezekiel writes not only to him, he he writes in a forward-thinking manner when you are interpreting your hermeneutic, which is how you interpret the Scripture, you have to understand the law of double reference. The law of double reference basically says that he is writing to a current situation and he is also speaking beyond that situation to something else. It's a now, but not yet. It's a now, but it will be. It's similar to what happened when Jesus turned and looked at Peter in Matthew chapter 16, and he spoke to Peter these words. He said, get behind me, what? Satan. Now, did he call Peter Satan? Well, Satan was working through him, but who is he directing his voice to? Satan himself. It's the law of double reference. He's speaking to Peter, but he's also speaking to Satan. He's saying, don't try to stop me. Get out of the way. You can't. Get behind me. You're not in charge. And so it's the law of double reference, and you understand that as you read Scripture, especially in the prophetical books. In Ezekiel 28, verse 11, the Bible says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre, and say to him, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Now he's speaking to the king of Tyre, Tyre and Sidon, a a kingdom that's just to the north of, of Israel. Speaking to the king, but in the law of double reference, he's speaking beyond him to another situation. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom. And perfect in beauty. Now, notice verse 13. You were in the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold, and on the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked in the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until wickedness was found in you. your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings by your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. And all the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. Now, once again, Ezekiel is writing to the king of Tyre, who is actually operating under the influence of Satan himself. We know that Ezekiel is not just referring to this human king in Tyre, but he's also referring to the heavenly realm that he saw past, that God is referencing. And we know that because the things that he describes in just this passage could not apply to any human nor that could they apply to any earthly place. I've heard stories of what heaven is like. I've I heard a story just recently about what it must be like to live in heaven and a man was telling the story had how he had dreamt that he went to heaven. And as he was Entering into that place, he said it was just the most beautiful thing. The landscape, what caught his attention at first, it was just a beautiful thing to see. He described being in that place, saying, I felt like that I just belonged there. I didn't feel like a stranger. It was a it was an overwhelming sense of I understood where I was and what was taking place. But he said the most important thing that I noticed about the beauty. Beyond the beauty, and beyond the decor and, and just the pres that was being in there was the presence that I felt. He said, I actually I was consumed by the presence of God. Now, some of you know what that's like. You've been in services or you've had had moments where you have felt the presence of God come upon you so strong, you knew that you were that God was near. It wasn't just the affirmation of someone saying, you know, the Lord is going to be with you, you know, and every part of your life, He's going to be with you. It was the feeling. You felt His closeness. Some of you have felt the hand of the Lord laid upon you. I've heard that story from a few of you. I've felt the nearness of God, like like He was standing right next. I've felt His presence. It It was an awesome thing. And this man described, he said, I felt nearness of God in my life. He said it was the most wonderful part of, of, of being in heaven. And he said, when, it, when my dream was almost over, I knew that I had to leave. And he said, I didn't want to leave. It wasn't because it was so beautiful and things were so pretty. It was because I did not want to leave. The feeling of God's presence being so close. My friends, when we get to that place, and we've heard all that's described about streets of gold and mansions of gate, the pearl. When we see all of those things, it's going to be wonderful. But I'm telling you, the most important, impressive, most lovely thing about heaven is that the presence of God will be near. You won't want to go anywhere. Keep the gold and the silver and the rubies and all the beauty, but let me not leave His presence. Wow. Ezekiel describes these things. He describes this heavenly scene. Not just describing the king of Tyre. What Ezekiel describes is the garden of God. He calls it Eden. We actually have an Eden in our church. Her name is Eden. Eden in the Hebrew language means perfection, luxury, It's the same word that Moses used to describe the very first garden, Eden. We'll talk about it in a moment. But Ezekiel describes the garden of God, the heavenly realm. He describes this entire scene. And one individual, he lays an association with the king of Tyre. And that is this individual that we will come to know as Lucifer. Satan. Let me describe something to you. Lucifer, Satan. He is a creation of God. He is not God. He is not even compared to God. He's not the opposite of God. Satan is not anything near the level of who God is. He is not infinite. He is not, he didn't have a, 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 an eternity past. He was created by God. All of the angels were created by God. When they were created, we do not know. The scripture doesn't make that clear. But all of the angels in heaven were created at one time. At one moment. They were all created. They they didn't come about through procreation as Jesus describes in Matthew. There is no male and female angels there are just angels and they have they were created all at the same time in eternity past by God they weren't created as baby angels you don't have a little baby angel flying around with a little harp trying to watch over you or shoot you with an arrow there's no such thing the bible says that they were created and were created mature all at the same time the bible says that there's a vast number of these beings, these cherub, these these angelic beings, an incredible number. The Bible describes them as multitudes upon multitudes, a, a vast number. It can't be measured. It's it's without counting. The person we speak about this morning here in this garden of God was Lucifer. His his name means son of the morning or Or morning star, in verse 13, you see that he was created in perfection and wisdom and beauty. Look at it, verse 13. Perfection, beauty, and wisdom. Let me tell you, God never makes anything unless it's perfect. He made you. You look at yourself in the mirror and you say, Oh my God, you must have done this on your day off. Can I tell you, in God's eyes, you're perfect. You were created just the way He wanted you to be. Just the amount of hair that He wanted you to have. The size that you are. Your height. Your width. God created this powerful, angelic being, Lucifer that the Bible says was one of the most powerful angels. He was an archangel. He was, as the Scripture says in in verse 13, he was a, a guardian cherub. He was powerful. And Ezekiel, as he describes this garden, speaking in past tense, he says, at one time, you, son of the morning, You held this position. You ruled under God. You, in total submission to the Creator, you saw His creation and you helped to oversee it. But notice verse 15. It says that a time came when His submission to God ceased and He was no longer blameless. You ask the question, well, what did He do? What did this being do? Well, we don't know exactly what he did. We have little information in the scripture, but we know this, that he rebelled against God, and he decided that God was not doing the job well enough, and he decided to go and do his own thing. And one of the reasons why we don't have all the information, and there's still many, many questions we like to ask, and pontificate on is because the Bible is a story is not a story of the creation and the fall and the story of redemption of the angels but it is the the Bible is the story uh, and the creation and the fall and the redemption of mankind and so the only information we are going to have to the scripture is is that which is related to our own redemption you will have plenty of time if you know the Lord and you were in heaven, to get filled in on all of the things. In verse 17, look at it with me. It says that your heart, he's speaking to Satan himself. He says, your heart became proud because of your beauty. He began to look at himself. He began to look at his position as, as, as his beauty. He began to look at himself and he became proud. And let me tell you, friends. Whether you're an angelic being, a cherub, a guardian cherub, or you're, you're just a, a Joe sitting right here in this room, let me tell you, it's a dangerous place to start looking at yourself and thinking you've got it all together. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Be careful, my friend. Just when you think you've got it all figured out, just when you think your, have, your plans are, are going are are, are to transpire just exactly the way that you thought them to, to be, my friend, it's that pride that caused Lucifer to consider himself to be something to succeed God, that he could do it better. How many men and women have fallen on their face when they looked at their life and they say, you know what? I know how to do life myself. I can do it myself. I don't need God. I don't need word. I can do life exactly the way I want to do it. The proverb writer says this. He says, the Lord detests the proud in heart and it will not go unpunished. As soon as that you are self-sufficient in your life. Just wait, my friend, or better yet, don't wait. So the question is: Is if Satan knew who God was, how could he think that he could get by with it? Have you ever thought about that? Why in the world, if he knew God was the Creator, God Almighty? And he led the angelic armies and worshiped to him. Why would he think he could get by with it? I tell you, friends, you just look at us. Look at what men and women do every day. Don't be surprised at this angelic being because... Our consciousness, our, 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 our life, the essence of being, we have actually no control over any of it. You can't wake up this morning and say, you know what, I want my heart to make sure that it beats 5,000 times today. I'm going to think about making sure that my lungs fill with air. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be this and I'm going to do that. My friend, you have no control over those things in your life. It's by the grace of God you even opened your eyes this morning because you didn't really control it. You were unconsciously asleep in la-la land, and God brought you back to that conscious state. But when we say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, that's exactly what he says, so don't be surprised. Because not only did he fall, but he took a third of the angels with him, as Isaiah says. A third of the angelic hosts went with him. How did he convince them to do so? such a thing? It's because he is the greatest deceiver of all time. The Bible describes him as a being with a forked tongue. He is a liar. He is a manipulator. As a matter of fact, the word devil in Greek means slanderer. He can't tell the truth. He convinced heaven's angels or a portion of them that he was right and that God was wrong. And his strategy has been and always will be if he can convict you that his way is right and God's way is wrong, he will do it all day long if you will allow it. Unless you know Jesus, you're in trouble because he runs the systems of this world. Now hear me. The thing you get pushed upon you from mass media, from ungodly outlets of news, from friends who don't know the Lord, from people that you associate with who don't have an ounce of, of, of godliness within them and they live their lives to themselves, something you, my friend, are in danger of being gobbled up by that system because... The Bible says that he, Lucifer, runs the systems of the world, that he is the prince of the powers of the air, Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says that you were dead, speaking of of people who had come to the Lord. He said there was a time when you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you walked following the course of this world, the systems of the world, following the, look at that, the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There is a spirit that is working in the world today, and it is run by this guardian cherub that has turned into the greatest liar and deceiver that eternity has ever known. He runs these systems, the earth and its fullness may belong to God, but Satan is the ruler of the world's systems. He thought he could deprive God of his ability to rule in heaven. And I asked myself, why would God, why would he think such a thing? Why would he think such a thing? And the Lord revealed this to me. Because he knew that a God of love would never force even the angels to serve him why would you even attempt because he knew that god in his infinite love toward all things that he has created would never force the multitudes of heaven just to serve him as a believer we wrestle against this power jesus wrestled against this system this influence of satan i don't run around looking for demons under every rock and i hope that you don't either my point is in showing you this garden of god is that we are not we are not to just be devil conscious we are to be christ conscious that's why Jesus told us not to worry about the world and things in the world, because we do have an enemy of our soul. And he may be the prince of the powers of the air, and this and he may be the, the ruler of the world system, but our God is the God of all heaven and all earth. Why didn't God just kill the devil when he had a chance? Well, I wish he would have. Amen. But I know this, that in the end, God will receive the glory. How much more glory could God receive? He could have done away and just snapped his fingers and Satan is gone. But how much more glory could God have by rubbing it in his nose when the, when the enemy of our souls tries to tempt us and destroy us and to prowl around like a roaring lion and instead the grace of God enacts His grace upon us and we resist that old tempter, that liar, that deceiver and we say, you know what, we're not choosing you or your world system. We choose God. We choose Him because of His love that He so loved the world that He gave His only Son to save us and redeem us. How much more glory can God get from that story than just saying, hey, it's done. It's all about the glory of God, and it encourages me. God will get the glory. He will get the glory. The devil may make plans and schemes, and he may back you into a corner, and God may let him to do. say, you can do whatever you want to do, but God says, I know that all things will work together for the good of those who love me and who are called according to my purposes. So one day soon, God's going to answer your prayer. And the Bible says that he's going to take an angel. It's just going to take one. And he's going to wrap that old serpent, that lying, deceived, forked-tongued Satan, Lucifer. He's going to wrap him, him into the lake of fire. And it'll be over and done with. Praise God. Somebody say amen. No more satanic influence. No more satanic in, in, uh, temptation or depression. No more interference. I'm telling you, friends, the last page of the book, I've read it and we win. Hallelujah. We win. Revelation says that we overcome by the word of the by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We win. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The garden of God. Genesis chapter 2. There's another garden. It's the Garden of Eden. Verse 8 says, Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east. In Eden, there he put the man and he formed and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground and the trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. And the Lord took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. God made man in His image. The Bible says that He took him and He put him in a place of Eden. He put him in a place of luxury, a place of perfection. It was such an, an incredible place. The Bible says that in the evening of the day that God walk with man. He walked with Adam. He would teach him. He would encourage him. He would, he would talk him about things. Uh, we, we don't understand that because we live in a fallen nature with fallen mankind and, and as thousands and millennia of years have passed by, we see the effects of that sin upon our physical bodies, our, our mind, our emotions. But in those beautiful days, God walked with mankind. He taught him. And let me tell you, Adam was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant being. Brilliant man. God gave him the responsibility to name all the all of the animals. Can you just imagine that? You have a had a hard time trying to just name your own children. And if you get to my age, you can't even remember their names. You call them by something else. You know what I'm talking about. You have to list all of your other kids before you finally get to the right one. He was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. He named animals, and you know what? I thought about this. It's just an incredible thing. Can you imagine the animals as they begin to parade by Adam, and he begins to name them? And I know at first he had lots of energy and enthusiasm at what God had called him to do. I don't think he had any idea how many animals there were. The first one approaches and he says, I declare you hippopotamus. I mean he was really he was really into it. You are platypus. But after thousands of animals go by, poor old Adam might have got a little tired. Because then this four-legged chewing creature comes up and he says, Cow. dog. The one that really gets me is this. Fly. He starts naming them by what they're doing. He can't even come up with a name. He just says, fly, fly. Can you imagine if the eagle was right in front of the fly and he's like, fly, what am I? Swiss cheese. Fly, fly, right here, eagle. Adam was a brilliant. God gave him perfection. He put him in the Garden of Eden. And he told him there in the center of the garden is something that you have to be careful with. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because when you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Now, he's not talking about just physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. Spiritual death, where you are separated from God. Your communion with God is broken. And you have to be restored. That relationship has to be restored. That connection has to be restored. That's what spiritual life is. That's what knowing Jesus is. It restores your original relationship with the Lord. Life begins to flow into you instead of out of you. tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I want you to see something and understand that this garden is the next step in the process because this garden is actually the source of Satan's power and influence in our lives. Because it is good and evil. Now, we know evil. Murder, rape, fevery, lying, we know, we know, we understand that evil side. But it's the good side that has caught so many souls. Because that tree was both good and evil. And the world's systems, the systems of this world, Satan does this, he builds these systems upon the good. They're built upon that side of the tree. The roots of that side of the tree is what Satan uses to influence so many people. You see, all religions in the world take their roots from the tree that is good. People want good for people. Whether you're Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or Christian... We want to do what's good, and many many, sadly, many Christians, we fall into that trap because we see our faith as nothing more than just a religion. Now follow me. And in religion, you try to save yourself because you do enough good that you're good enough for God if you can have more education, if we can give more education to the world, if we can uh, have more influence. Let me tell you something. It's the good people. Every pastor wants those good people to come to his church because they have influence. They've, They've done something. They have done good in their life. And man, oh, I mean, think about the rich young ruler. He could have picked any church he wanted to attend, and they'd have brought him in as a member. I've done all these things, he told Jesus. I have kept the law. All of these things I have done, man, I'd love to add that guy to Journey Fellowship Church. He's a good guy. But he didn't follow Jesus, did he? You see, Adam fell from a perfect environment. And in our world, we think that we can just do good and get things good enough, and that's going to solve the problem. That's how our government thinks. Our government believes that if you, if you can just change a person's environment, if you, if you can fix their environment, you can cure all of their problems. It's not evil, it's good. You just give enough good upon them and you don't fix them. Let me tell you, my friend, man's problem... It's not environmental. It is not educational. It is not even socioeconomic. Man's problem is that we have a spiritual problem. It is a sin problem. And when you get right with God, you can find the answer to your problems. But we want to keep doing good. We want to save ourselves by works. We want to save ourselves because we're so good. Look at me, God. You deserve me. I'm a good guy. It's the knowledge of good and evil. We thought that we could get ourselves. Let me tell you something. You can't get right without God, with God without the grace of the Lord. But you find Jesus Christ, you get a couple saved, and you'll, you'll fix the divorce problem. You let somebody come and experience the power of deliverance and the grace of God, you'll fix their drug problem. You let someone can, uh, find out find out that God will provide for their need, you'll solve the thieving problem that they have because it's not just an environmental problem, it's a spiritual condition. And our creation is out of alignment because of the fall that took place in this garden. But thank God that He did not leave us And that's the end of the story in that garden. Let me read Romans chapter 8. says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth up unto the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, We were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we want, for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. My friends, we have hope in Jesus that someday will be revealing in us that not just what happened in the garden has... this fall this fall into sin this this fall into into deception and into bondage but we have hope that these days even in our mortal bodies we will be saved by the power of god he didn't leave us in that garden of destruction he brought us out with hope with hope we have hope today you have hope today and it's because of these next two gardens. And I move quickly. The Garden of Gethsemane. We read the Scripture this morning already. It's a man-made garden. Nothing close to the two gardens of Eden that that we see in the Scripture described as perfect and luxurious. It's a man-made garden. Shannon and I have actually walked through this garden. It's an incredible place. It's a little different. It's filled with trees that are ancient, but we were there Old olive trees that were twisted, huge, enormous stumps, six feet across. These trees are ancient olive trees. In the midst of that olive grove, there's a small place, a garden that was called Gethsemane. And on that night, just a few days before Jesus was crucified, this man, he kneels in that garden overwhelmed, overcome with compassion. For the last three and a half years, this man has fought the temptation and resisted it every time. Where Adam lived in a perfect environment and fell, Jesus lived in the most imperfect environment, but yet came through completely sinless and spotless. he speaks these eternal words my father if it's possible may this cup be taken from me yet not as i will but your will be done this garden shows us that we have victory we sang about it earlier victory in jesus my savior forever he sought me bought me With His redeeming blood, we have victory in Christ. And we are talking about that victory that some people sing the songs but don't know anything about. That victory was found in that garden when our Lord and Savior Jesus gave up His own will. Let me tell you something. He wasn't looking forward. The human side of Him was not excited about the suffering that was going to come upon Him. About those six-inch Thorns that would be shoved down into his brow and his head. That blood would run all over his body. That he would be beaten by over a hundred men, slapped on the back with a scourge that would rip the flesh off of him. He was not excited about that type of suffering and that type of pain. But yet, not his will. Thine be done, Lord God, because he knew that on the other side of that cup there was victory. Victory for the people that were awaiting, that were still lost in that garden where man had fallen and Abraham and Adam had made the choice there would be victory in this garden where the yielding of his will was turned over to God. It's not about me anymore, Lord. It's all about you, oh God. Help us as a church to declare that from our own soul. Lord Jesus, help us, Lord, to say it's not about us, it's only about you. Your will be done, O oh God. Isaiah 53 says, He was, He grew up before us like a tender shoot. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him, nothing in His appearance that we would desire. And yet he was crushed for our, our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, and stripes, we are healed. For we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He did our own thing. Jesus came along and said, I'm going to set you free of all of that sin, of all of that bondage, of all of that weight that's in your life did it in that garden when he gave God the submission to his will. 2 Corinthians, Paul says, chapter 5 verse 21, he says, for God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Some people have heard that there is no hope. But I want you to know with God, all things are possible. There is no sin that He can't save a sinner from. There is no bondage that He can't break off of man or woman. There is no hell that He cannot plunder. Because there is truly victory in Jesus Christ in your life. I want to close with this final garden. Found in John chapter 19, verse 41. Daniel, would you come? At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. I've been to that garden too. I've walked through that little peaceful place, found just on the outskirts of Jerusalem, underneath a hill that looks like a skull. Little garden there. Not a hundred percent sure that it was the exact garden. Thousands of years have transpired, but had to be close. And there in that little garden, a little stone stone on the side of that mountain, out of stone is, is hewn a hole, a tomb. I believe instead of God having Jesus buried in the side of some mountain where dirt would erode, he, he, he honed a tomb out of the side of rock so that thousands of years and thousands and thousands more we will never forget that the tomb still stands empty. These first three gardens that we talked about were all about death and destruction, but this garden, the garden of resurrection is all about life. I can't help but imagine that at the crucifixion Satan probably called a board meeting of all of his leaders. And he said, fellas, this has been going on a long time. It started way back in the garden of God. started in that garden where I decided that I would do my own thing. I was there in the garden with Adam and Eve, and I convinced Adam that my way was a better way. That heaviness that was laid upon Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was nothing compared as he marched up Calvary's hill and he received those nails into his hands and feet and finally he said, It is finished. I finished him. Fellows, we won. I finally got him. We took him out. We beat him. At that moment, the ground beneath the tomb began to shake. (laughs) Praise the Lord. The Roman guard, standing guard over that tomb, fell down, scared to death of what was taking place. Then, out of nowhere, the angel of the Lord rolls this massive stone. Out of the way of that entrance of that rocky tomb. And the light begins to shine as Jesus Christ walks out of that tomb alive, alive, alive. Friends, that's the message of the church. It's the message that comes from the garden of resurrection that Jesus is alive. We don't need to be arguing about the finer points of sanctification or the evidences of the holy spirit or the works that we can do in the graces of god the message of the early church was he's alive he's alive he's alive jesus is alive hallelujah that's the garden the garden of resurrection praise the lord it's in that garden that we won the victory amen we have victory in jesus because of that garden as I close, I echo the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57. But thanks be to God, He gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> thanks for listening to this message. If you were blessed by this ministry, we want to encourage you to share it. And if you don't have a church home, come join us any Sunday at 1030.